get up here in town. All right, Philippians chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, turn to Philippians chapter 2. Don't have my mic on. I'm just all ill-prepared here. Today we're continuing uh, the series Kingdom Culture. Uh, so go ahead and turn to Philippians chapter 2 and pull out that outline, if you will. We're in part 2 of where we're headed. And uh, I do want to thank Jason and the praise team, uh, Wesley, filling in for Wesley. And I uh, just uh, thought they did a marvelous job this morning. I want to thank them. Well, go ahead and look at the series introduction there. We're going to look at a couple of things here. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I read it last week, and uh, it almost undid me. So, But anyway, let's look at the series introduction. Because we're a collection of many people from various places, backgrounds, and stories, we believe culture-making is essential for unifying our church family around a shared vision as we carry the message of Jesus to the world. We exist to love God, connect with others, and reach the world by creating a culture where Jesus is our lead story, scripture and prayer are prime, worship is a lifestyle, we are a family, and we is greater than me. Now, I'm going to just pick out a couple of things I think uh, we really need to pay attention to as it relates to this morning in the rest of this. So look at the very first uh, sentence there. We believe that as the body of Christ, we are growing to be a part of something greater than ourselves. And that's a whole idea that, that we is greater uh, than any individual. And it goes a little bit further. We believe everyone has a role to play and a story to tell. If you go a little bit further down, we support, we trust, we unite. And then a little bit further down, because Jesus is our lead story, we do not elevate ourselves above him or one another. We believe humility and honor are the path to living out a culture of we is greater than me. And if you skip down near the bottom, we believe the practical implications of we is greater than me are best lived and demonstrated through being involved in a small group. We call that connect groups. Of course, if I didn't mention that paragraph, Gary would get me. And then these groups offer us the ability to do life together as we become all God desires us to be as a church family while creating a culture where we is greater than me. So what we're going to do, we're going to uh, review a little bit of last week, and then we're going to jump right in for this morning. So look at your outline. The me mentality makes us weaker. I'm convinced that a church that has a bunch of individuals that are, are, are consumed with, with, with power or consumed with wanting more influence in a way that is ungodly is very unhealthy for a church family. I believe when we allow our preferences to get in the way of what we believe God really wants us to do, that can be a detriment to the church also. And so when we look at what God is up to, there's certain things that must be discarded, and there's certain things and attitudes that we must pick up. And so look on your outline. Selfishness destroys the power of we. When we begin to want our desires met and what we are all about met. And so listen to this, Galatians 5, we, I'm going to review this with you. Listen to what it says. It says, I say then, walk in the Spirit. That's a command, Just walk in the Spirit. And when you do that, you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. And so when the selfishness begins to creep into your life, when you begin to respond to others with selfishness or you start thinking in an attitude of selfishness, uh, guess what? You need to realize that's the flesh speaking. That's the flesh side of you that's crying out. But he says, walk in the spirit. He goes on, he says, for the lust, for the flesh, lust against the spirit. There's a war going on, the spirit against the flesh. And they're contrary to one another. They're not moving in the same direction. So that you do not do what you wish you do. It's that whole idea of that, that time where you're sitting there. And if you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, I believe the Holy Spirit indwells you. You're the temple of God. And, and as you begin to respond in a bad way or have a bad attitude about something or, or do something, there's always that check in you. It's like, oh, I wish I'd have never said that. 
I wish I'd have never acted like that. I wish I had a better response to that. Y'all, every time we say that under our breath or think that, that's the flesh <laughs> crying out for what it wants. And y'all, the Bible says, you know what the Bible says about it? The Bible says, as we said last week, that we must work at crucifying the flesh. That's not a one and done deal. It's every day waking up, every moment with that mentality that we are to put to death. And, and when you look at it, when it says crucified, it's talking about a radical death. It's talking about a violent death must come. And that's the whole idea of crucifying the flesh. Next, pride destroys the power of we. Pride. Let, let me just say this. Behind every sin, and I think the Bible would definitely uh, equate this to be true, uh, behind every sin is pride. It's pride. It's literally, if you were to say, okay, what is the best mechanism for pride to work through? I mean, for self, uh, uh, for the flesh to work through, it would definitely be pride. It's almost like when pride is planted, it is planted in, in, in the seabed of flesh. And as it begins to work its way, it, begins, it becomes many other things. And that's really what we're talking about here this morning. Another one, insecurity destroys the power of we. Let me tell you about insecurity. Insecurity can be very detrimental to relationships. If a person has insecurity about themselves, guess what? They will, there, there will be so many ways it plays out in the most intimate of relationships. And this is what I said last week. Insecurity causes us to fear exposure. Insecurity causes us to fear rejection and, and really fear intimacy. It's almost like those who, who have insecurity, they, they desire intimacy so badly. They want it so badly. But guess what? Because of their insecurity, they are their own worst, uh, worst enemy as it relates to intimacy. And I can't tell you how many times I've, I've counseled situations in which I've seen and, and, and with couples in particular where, where, where that whole idea plays out. And, and, and they're crying out. Sometimes both of them are crying out. But there's that whole idea of insecurity that plays out. One thing that I've noticed about insecurity is it really runs parallel with our identity. Your identity, once it's established, when your identity is established in Christ, which the Bible tells us that that's where our identity is to be, it's in Christ. Guess what? When we firmly understand that and we live in the reality of that, let me tell you what happens. Insecurity begins to fade away. Because we see ourselves not in maybe what we see in a mirror or what we believe other people are saying about us or, say, or, 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 or how they view us. Or, but listen, we, when we're in Christ, that is our identity. And from it, it removes insecurity. Next, resentment destroys the power of we. Resentment. And we discussed that in detail last week. And then let's move on. The, the we mentality makes us healthier. So while the, the me mentality destroys what we're hoping to accomplish here in this body and what you're hoping to accomplish in your marriage and in your families, you can slip it around. The we mentality makes us healthier. And, of course, we saw this last week. Selflessness destroys the power of me. Selflessness. Now look at the Philippians chapter 2. I hope you turn there. Now I'm going to do something a little different because I think it will make more sense to us to read it this way. I want us to look at verse 5. Paul says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. He's saying, take on the mind of Christ in this matter. Who being in the form of God, he's explaining to you how radical this whole statement is. He's saying, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Let me, and then he says, let me show you how radical it is. He says, who being in the form of God, 
did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. He, he was equal with God. And you know something? God tells us that he endorsed that. Every, th- every time Christ talked about him being, in, if you see me, you see the Father. When you see the Father, you see me. Listen, God endorses that thought. That, that's a true thought. He says he, he didn't uh, consider it robbery to be equal with God. But look at verse 7. But made himself, Jesus made himself of no reputation. He literally, that literally means he emptied himself. Taking the form of a bondservant, that's lower than where many of us are actually living, and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself. Do you know what, you know what that literally means? He lowered himself. Deity lowered himself to meet the needs of us, of what was happening. So he lowers himself and became obedient. Now, now who is he obedient to? He was obedient to the Father. The Father desired to have communion once again with, the, with his um, uh, creation. And all of a sudden, what you see here is that Jesus comes on the scene and he became obedient, the Father's obedience to the point of death, even the death of a cross. Now, we're going to look at something else in Philippians, so hold your place there. But here's what I want you to think about. There's only one way to live selflessly, and that's by crucifying the flesh. It allows the Spirit to work in you and through you. Now, I want you to look at verse 2 of Philippians chapter 2. He says this, he says, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. It's almost like what Paul is saying here. He told us in verses two through four, he sets it up and then he says, Jesus was all that in five through eight. But the reason I want to read it backwards is I want you to see, he says, fulfill my joy by, by having the same love, being of one accord, being of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. It doesn't say let some things be done. It says let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. That idea of conceit is the whole idea of thinking you know what's best and no one else does. (laughs) And then it goes on and says, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Who was the best example of that? We already read that, right? It was Christ. And then it says, let each of you not only look out for his own interest, but also the interest of others. So we see that selflessness destroys the power of me. Next, humility destroys the power of me. We saw that last week. If if pride is the very thing that seems to be planted in the flesh and everything else seems to come from that, then guess what? The only way to uproot that is through humility. And it destroys the power of me. Next, love destroys the power of me. When we begin to love as Christ loved us, when we begin to live out the reality of the love that God has for us and we have that love for other people, guess what? It makes a change all around. Everything changes around us. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, you remember us talking about this last week, how most of us have that read at our weddings. Uh, if you go back and look, I guarantee you about three out of five weddings you attend, this, this chapter is read, parts of the chapter is read. But here's what's interesting. You think it's only ascribed to the most intimate of relationships, the relationship between a husband and wife. When Paul wrote this, he wasn't addressing husbands and wives. He was addressing church members. He was addressing those who made up the body of Christ. And you remember that? I mean, to me, that's, 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 it's crazy when you start thinking of love in that term because we always associate, no, that's a love that's on a reserve for husbands and wives. That's just not true. It's a love that he says needs to be demonstrated through the body of Christ. Next, forgiveness destroys the power of me. 
Now, I, wonder, I felt like I rushed through this verse last week, but God is speaking. He's telling the nation of Israel. Remember last week, last year, <laughs> last year, seems like last year. Last week, I was telling you about how uh, when, when, when God's addressing the nation of Israel, he's addressing people he was in covenant with. And, and here's what's interesting. When we come to know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we, we, we become in cov- a covenant with God also. And what's interesting is that I believe that the same words that he uses to speak to Israel can be spoken to the, to the Christians today. And so look here at the verse. You remember saying this? Do not, do not remember the former things, nor consider the things of old. Don't be constantly living back there in the past where you're holding on to something, where you're holding on to something against one another, or where you're holding on to something. He's saying, behold, I will do a new thing. Some translations say, I'm going to do a new work. Now it shall spring forth. Shall you not know it? Do you, you know what a paraphrase of this is? He said, do you realize that I can do it? That's a paraphrase of what that end part of that verse means. And he says, I can do it. I can create a new thing in you. I will even make a road in the wilderness. Now why would you need a road in the wilderness? Because sometimes we get lost in our world. And you know what? Many times it's of our own fault. When we become resentful, when we harbor unforgiveness in our hearts, guess what? We lose our way. We lose our perspective. I'm telling you, when I've held resentment against someone in my life, I'm telling you, it consumes a large part of my life. And everything that I see, everything that I view sometimes is through the lens of that resentment. And we're being called to to lay aside those things. Don't remember those things anymore. Don't let those old things have influence in today because God says, I want to do a new work in you. You've lost your way. And then he says, and rivers in the desert. You know what that means? He wants to bring times of refreshing to your life. Times of refreshing. Listen, as I said last week, there's some of you sitting here today, and, and, and if you're hearing it for the second time, maybe you need to hear it for the second time. But I'm here to tell you, there's a lot of people in our day and age, and they've become bitter and, and I know people, and I've met people along the way that, that are bitter, and the seed was, was, was planted a long time ago. And, and everything that comes out of your mouth is hateful. Everything is, you can, sometimes you can just see it stirring. And, and I don't know what happened. I don't know what's back there. But let me just tell you this. God wants you to not allow that to have influence in your life in the present. He wants you to put it to death. Did you know when we crucify the flesh, we're literally crucifying the things that the flesh brought up years ago? So it's not just, okay, Lord, I'm in this moment of temptation. Let me crucify the flesh so I can walk in the spirit. No, some of us need to start way back there. And and when we say we're crucifying the flesh, we need to put to death the resentment and the unforgiveness that we harbor in our lives for him to do a new work. Next, prayer destroys the power of me. I did rush through this last week. But here's a question. When we pray for someone, or here's here's an answer to something. When we pray for someone, let me tell you what happens. We become connected to them. Did you know that? I remember years ago, I was really troubled with something. How many of you have ever felt like you've been done wrong before? You ever felt like you've been done wrong? And, And I remember... Going to someone that was much wiser than me. And, and I just said, listen, I'm really struggling with this. This thing is bigger than I am. I, I, I mean, I'm consumed with this. And uh, I, I, I kind of gave the details of what I was dealing with. And, and you know what the person said? And it was, to be honest with you, it was directed towards someone. And, and here's what the person said. 
Well, have you ever, have, do you pray for that person? No, I don't want to pray for that person. Well, that's probably where you need to start. You want, you want me to pray God's blessings on this person? You want me to pray? I, don't, I want them punished. <laughs> All right, if, you, if you're going to be honest with me this morning, how many of you have been there before? You didn't want to see God bless your life. You wanted them punished. And, and here's, here's the approach. We may not think it this way, but here it is. How dare them treat me this way? Who do they think they are? You know what the real question is? Who do I think I am? To think that I can hold that against someone when the God of heaven sent his only begotten son to take care of what was between me and him. And I think I have the right to go after someone. I have the right. And so what happens when we begin to pray for someone, it destroys me. Because when I get hurt, guess what? It becomes about me. How many of you have noticed that about yourself? When you're hurt, it's you. It's all you think about. And so when we pray for someone, we become connected to that person. We become less critical. We begin to care. We develop a passion for that person. Guess what? The person who gave me that advice when I started acting in that, once I pouted about it and didn't want to do it, and then finally caved in on it because I got sick of caring all the, the resentment, you know what happened? I began to have compassion for the person. I began to have a love for that person once again. I began to want what's best for that person. But boy, it sure took some time. And I'm just here to tell you the time before that even took place in my life. If you were to say, describe what it was like, it was like being lost in the wilderness. It was like no times of refreshing. (laughs) I needed a touch from God. And y'all, the only way it comes is not by feeding the flesh and what it wants to do to that person. But when we yield ourselves and we crucify the flesh and we say, you know something? I want to walk in your spirit because that is what's best for me. That's what's best for those around me is when I get right. Now, here's a question. How do you pray for someone? How do you pray for someone? You know how we pray for people? And there's nothing wrong with this, okay? We pray for their physical needs, don't we? If they need health, we pray for their health. If they need this, we pray for that. Hardly ever do we really pray what that person really needs in their life. Have you ever thought that some of the physical ailments that many of us have is there for a reason? Do you know God can allow physical ailments to come our way, to open our eyes, to draw us closer, to cause us to rely on Him? And what's our first inclination when it comes to praying for someone? Oh, Lord, please take this away from them. Please remove this. And part of it is sometimes it's an honest prayer because some of these are people we love desperately and we, don't, we want the best for them. We can't bear to see them suffer. And so all of a sudden we become in that mode of, Lord, just deliver them from it. And God's basically sitting there saying, do you realize I'm doing something here? So you know what? Sometimes we've got to take a, a step back and look at the bigger picture. I want to show you something. The Bible shows us how to pray. Look at Philippians chapter 1. This is Paul's prayer. If you skip down to Philippians 1, go down to verse 9. First of all, in verses 3 through 8, he talks about them. He talks about the fact that I know God's going to do a great work in you. I know it began back there, but it's going to be completed. Oh, my goodness. Let me just tell you how you can pray for me. And then he comes in verse 9. He says, and this I pray that your love may abound still more and more. In knowledge and all discernment. When it says abound, it means a great abundance. It, it, it literally means that it would be more than anyone could handle. 
So much like that. And then it says in knowledge, the love is in knowledge and discernment. Let me tell you where love is played out in our society. If there's emotion attached to it. If there's that emotion. If it, and guess what? Emotion. What have you found out about emotion? It's very misleading. Very misleading. And the fact is, he says this love will be grounded in what? In knowledge. That is truth. In discernment. In being able to see the pictures of what, what God is up to. What he's trying to do in a person's life. He says, verse 10, that you may approve the things that are excellent. It means that you can evaluate those things in your life and you can say, okay, this is a good thing. And he says, what are those good things? The things that are excellent. That means you're not settling for anything less than what God wants for you. He's praying that for them. Being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. He's saying, you know something? You're righteous. And the reason you're righteous is because of the glory, because of what God, Christ did for you on the cross. He says, start living that way. And I'm praying that you'll live that way. If you go to John chapter 17, I'm just going to read a couple of verses. Anyone who's studied God's word, the last part of John chapter 17 is literally Jesus praying for us. Listen what it says, verse 20. I do not pray for these alone, those that were right there with him, but also for those, listen, who will believe in me through their word. You know who he had around him? His disciples. They were the ones that would write the scriptures. They were the ones that would go out and plant the seeds of the gospel everywhere. And as a result, it made its way 2,000 years to us. And so what, Paul, what, Paul, what Jesus is saying here, he's saying, he says, I'm not just praying for these around me. I'm praying for those down the road. That's us. That they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be one in us. That the world may believe that you sent me. And if you read the rest of that chapter, you can see how Jesus... Praise for us. And y'all, it's not anatomy. It's not an anatomy lesson. It's about the inner core of who we are. He goes on, or here's another thought. Affirmation destroys the power of me. How many of you like people in your life that seem to appreciate you, seem to affirm you, seem to just love on you? How many of you appreciate those people in your life? Yeah, yeah, listen to this. When we affirm others, we are showing love and care. We are literally ministering like Jesus ministered. Listen to this. Affirmation, look on your outline, shows acceptance. Shows acceptance. In, in Romans chapter 15, look here at the verse. Therefore, receive, that word receive is accept one another, just as Christ also received or accepted us to the glory of God. Now, now let me tell you what happens to many of us. Some of us have a tendency to take our strengths and project, project them on others. And then notice how they don't quite measure up to our standards. How many of you have ever done that to someone? It's easy to do it to our children, isn't it? It's very easy to do that. And so when they don't measure up, we may not send signals of acceptance uh, this, this, l listen, this makes us feel better about ourselves sometimes in a sick way. But there's a better way to feel good about ourselves. Instead of putting others down, lift others up by affirming them. Now, how do you tell when you've accepted someone? When you stop insisting that they be just like you. <laughs> Think about how boring the world would be if everyone were like us. I'm glad everybody's not like me. 
And the thing is, listen, here's what we got to be careful of. Can you accept a person but not accept their sin? Yes, you can. Jesus did it beautifully. John chapter 4, woman at the well. Beautiful story. He shows up there in Samaria. The Jews and Samaritans did not get along. Matter of fact, one of the biggest contradictions you could ever have in that society in the first century was a male Jewish person, man, and a female Samaritan. They just didn't interact. There was no reason for them to interact. Now, occasionally, maybe two men would need to interact for business purposes or whatever. But in the first century, it just, it, you just didn't see that. And so what happened is Jesus approached the woman at the well. And, of course, she was in sin. You do know that, right? She was in sin. She was living in sin. And so Jesus comes to her. And, and she is completely blown away that he would even talk to her. Not because he was deity. She didn't, she didn't figure that out yet. But because she was a Samaritan. And Jesus, with all the, the world in the first century the way it was, he goes into there. He accepts her. He knew she was a Samaritan. He knew the sin that she was in. And he goes into her. He, he accepts her. He brings her in. But here's what's interesting. He, he accepted her, but he confronted her sin. He accepted her, but he confronted her sin. And guess what? A great work must have happened in her life. Because she went out from there spreading the gospel after that. Did you know that the disciples came in after this whole showdown happened? And evidently he was still talking to her. And you know what the disciples says? Can you believe he's talking to her? They weren't to that point where they were accepting of other people. But Jesus was. He confronted her sin, but he accepted her. Next, affirmation gives attention. Attention takes more of an investment in others than acceptance. Did you know that? You can accept someone and still ignore them. How do I know that? I've done it. <laughs> How many of you are powders? Anybody pout here? Are you serious? Thank you. <laughs> There's one back there. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. Thank you. Appreciate that. Thank you for that hand. There you go. Thank God. I was about to have a complex up here. But I can accept someone and be very cold and distant. My wife's probably shaking her head. I'm not even looking at her. But listen, it's that whole idea of attention. In Galatians 6.10, here's an instruction. Give special attention to those who are in the family of believers. Special attention. Invested attention. It implies investment. Here's a principle. Whatever you pay attention to is going to grow. And it's probably going to grow in a healthy way. If you pay attention to your garden, what do you hope to have? Fruit, right? You pay attention. You invest time in it. Good things can happen. How about if you invest time in your kids? They can grow. How about if you invest uh, attention uh, or time into your marriage? It can grow. Growth is a sign of healthiness. And so when I'm giving attention, when I'm giving time to something, it's very important for, for me to understand, where does God want me to give my attention to? Next, affirmation demonstrates appreciation. You know what appreciation literally means? It means to raise in value. To raise in value. You ever been around people that just kind of raised your value? <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Just made you feel good about yourself? They just raised your value. Jesus did that. 
Think about his ministry. We all hope to be appreciated. We all hope to be valued. Every time you appreciate someone, listen, you raise their value. When you appreciate your wife, your husband, your children, you raise their value. When you appreciate those in your connect groups, you raise their value. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, it says this, Therefore, comfort each other and edify each other. That's the whole idea of investment. Just as you're also doing. He's saying, I see you're doing it. And we urge you, brethren, to recognize, to appreciate those who are laboring among you. Lift their value. Affirm them. Next, transparency develops the power of me. Or destroys, I'm sorry, the power of me. You know what transparency is? Just telling the truth about yourself. Listen, so many times, I think we'd be amazed at how many masks we wear. Have you ever worn a mask? I'm not, don't raise your hand, okay? This, this is not going to suit any of us to raise our hand here. But how many of you have a mask for each place that you go to? You go to your in-law's house. <laughs> kind of mask you put on? Your family outing. You come to church. What kind of mask do you put on? I, I say, I've said this so many times, but I want you to understand how valuable this was to us when we, when we were married in our early days of our marriage. When we came to a church that appeared to be transparent and was transparent. We came from a church from Wilmington. We were there, and, and I'll be honest with you. I, I've told you this before. It seemed like everybody in the place had it together. And, and, and now that I've gotten here and realized that y'all were messed up just like I was messed up, <laughs> I realized that was a lie back there, that I was just a mask. And, and y'all, when we, when we lower that mask, it's amazing what happens. It's amazing what happens w- with uh, each other. When you tell about your fears, your doubts, your hurts, your hang-ups... I've told you this many times. Many of the emails that I receive or the encouragement that I receive is people just saying, thank you for being real. Thank you for opening your life up. Sometime at my family's expense. But, but, but anyway, but, but thank you for doing that. Because all of us need to see. We need to take a peek in to see, okay, what's God doing? Where, where, where can you minister to me? And guess what? It's when we take off the mask that we can truly minister Transparency tears down walls and builds trust. Let me tell you what else it does. Look on your outline. It brings healing. Transparency brings healing. The Bible says in James chapter 5, confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another. Why would you do that? That you may be healed. That you may be healed. And then it goes a step further. The effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. You know what this implies? That when we confess our sins to one another, when we're transparent before one another, when we begin to pray for one another, all of a sudden there's a transformation that takes place in our lives. We become a righteous person and there's power living the life of a righteous person. Here's another one. Transparency offers a fresh start. It offers transformation. The Bible says in Proverbs 28, he who covers his sin will not prosper. But whoever confesses, and here's the biggest part, and forsakes them, their sin, guess what? They'll have mercy. They'll have mercy. How how many of you remember a time in your life where you just felt the presence of mercy in your life? Y'all, there's nothing greater than that. 
When you feel like God just extended mercy to you. Next, transparency fosters deeper fellowship. Deeper fellowship. Y'all, that's the glue that holds us together. Deeper fellowship happens when we pull off the mask, when we live in the reality of the truth that is around us. 1 John 1, 7 speaks to this. It says, but if we walk in the light. Well, now, what is light? Light is something that reveals. Light reveals. What does it reveal? Truth. It reveals truth. As he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. So if we're seeking to walk in the light, now I don't know about you, but it's hard to walk in the light of, uh, in the light of God when there's sin in our life. But if we're somehow we can be okay with God walking in that light, guess what? It's going to bring us closer together with one another. And it says, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, why would he put that in there? He's saying the problem's solved and we just come before him and lay our sin before him. And we can all walk in the light. That's perfect fellowship when we're all walking in the light. But here's a myth. We think if we're honest about our fears, our hangups, our imperfection, that people are going to think less of us. But let me tell you what I found out. I found out that the opposite's true. The opposite is really what's true is the fact that, listen, it's not that people want to hear dirt on you. It's just that you're just transparent. There's something refreshing about people who would just tell the truth. How many of you would love for a politician to just tell the truth? <laughs> there's times where there's some politicians and they don't exactly believe what I believe necessarily, but sometimes if they'll just tell the truth and you feel like it's a, you, you, your heart just goes out to it. It's like, oh, bless your heart. You don't know any better. You're a politician. No, I'm just kidding. But anyway, (laughs) but the thing is, people just want to hear the truth. They want to hear the truth of something. What's more attractive to you, deceitfulness or transparency? Transparency. Next, commitment destroys the power of me. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We're going to close with that uh, several verses there. Commitment destroys the power of me. Nothing affects your life more than your commitments. What we are committed to today will tell us where we will be in the future. We become what we're committed to. Did you know that? If you're committed to some addiction, that will identify who you are. That's how people will see you. That's how people will identify you. But if you identify with Christ, you identify with his body, a whole different thing happens. So our commitments shapes our lives. Now, here's where we need to be. We need to be devoted to God. How many of you agree with that? We all say, yeah, need to be devoted to God. But what are we doing? How are we doing that? Here's the way Jesus said you do it. When he, Jesus, had called the people together to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, boy, this is a tough commitment. Whoever desires to come after me, If you want to come after me, if you want to be led by me, if you want to live the reality of me in your life, here's here's the way it's going to look. Let him or her deny himself. Can you think of one incident this past week where you denied yourself? (laughs) We don't do that often, do we? Some of you may be sitting here and saying, I know exactly when I deny myself. When someone came at me this week with an ugly attitude and I felt like they misrepresented me or they came after me, I, I just, I, I wanted to respond like Jesus did. And I, I did and I felt like I was denying myself. I, I, you're on to something there. 
but it's, 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 it's much greater than that. It's your life. The reality of your life is defined by you denying yourself. Not just one time. Not just turning the other cheek one time. It's a life that's built on that. Do you know how hard it is to deny yourself when you're filled with the flesh? That's the reason he says crucified. Put it to death. If you can't do that, you will never live out what God wants you to live. You got to start by denying yourself and then take up your cross. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to crucify my flesh, which implies I'm going to put it on the cross. I'm going to put it to death, radically and violently put it to death. So I'm denying myself by doing that. But then I got to take up another cross. Yeah, the cross of Jesus. His attitude, his perspective, who he is, it all comes with that. And then he says, and then, it's implied, and then you're capable of following me. That's tough, isn't it? Devoted to God. Here's another commitment. Connected to one another. Connected to one another. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I want you to look at verse 12. How are we to relate to one another? For as the body is one and has many members. This is a description of the church. But all are the members of that one body. Being many are one body. So also in Christ. Is Christ. For by one spirit... We were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, all have and have all been made to drink into one spirit. Now, that's kind of hard to understand, but let me tell you what that means. It literally means that we no longer have an independent life. We have an integrated life. Okay? So we're not independent over here doing our own thing. Did you know that's foreign to those who follow Christ, to, to live an independent life, you are to live an integrated life where you're integrated into a local church, a local body of believers, and you come together because that's what he's calling you to do. But the, verse 13 also says this, that there are old, our old labels no longer apply. We're not, we're not looking around looking for the differences in one another. We're all drinking of the same thing. We're all one body. It doesn't matter what race you are. Doesn't matter what kind of economic status you come from. We're all one body. Goes on. For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I am not of the body. Is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I'm not of the body. Is it therefore not of the body? You know what he's saying here? All parts are needed and necessary. All parts are needed and necessary. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? Do you think there's possibly churches out there that, that, that sees things but never hears anything? There are. Let's go a little bit further. He says, if the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where would the smelling be? But now God has set the members. Now, we, we, we represent the members. He's each one of them in the body just as he pleased. Now, you know what excites me? I think I told you this. Last month, we had 34 people join our church. 34 people. Now, that blows my mind to this. I mean, think about what happened. God, there's 34 people who believe God 
desired them to be a part of this body. 34 more people were put into the body of Christ here. Hopefully not to just take up space, but to become involved, to become interconnected, to become integrated into the body. And so he says, there's a place for us. And listen, and if they were all one member, where would the body be? It speaks of potential. He's talking about the potential if we all work together. But now indeed, there are many members, yet one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much rather, those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. When, it, when, when the part of the body appears to be irrelevant, sorry. It's necessary. And those members of the body, which we tend to think is less honorable or irrelevant, on these we bestow greater honor. We see their worth and are unpresentable. These are unseen parts, have greater modesty. Now, now here's what he's saying. All parts are necessary, whether seen or not. Verse 24, but our presentable parts have no need. Now, let me ask you a question. What do you desire to have most? I'm not picking on you. Do you desire to have hair? Or liver? Doug, would you rather have liver? Sorry, man, I'm picking on Sorry, I figured I could get away with it. Don't you hate a guy with hair talking like this? You know, it just makes you sick. Anyway, but, but, but here, here's the deal. We, hair is obvious. It's obvious, but we, I'd rather lose my, oh, don't. I'd rather lose my hair <laughs> than lose a liver. Sorry, Jeff. I forgot about that. I'm picking on my buddies out here. I'm sorry, Jeff. No hair or liver, right? Uh, oh, okay. Oh, yeah, you got, got another. That's right. That's right. Okay. Yeah, you got a liver, right? That's right. Okay. <laughs> Listen, here it is. I got to get back to my subject here. But God composed the body, having given greater honor to that which lacks it, that we may see is unnecessary. We may see it as unnecessary. It may not be as prominent. It's necessary. That there should be no schism in the body. That, that it would, there, there would be no division. There would be great function. There would be a healthy functioning body here. But that the members should have the same care for one another. That there's health going on. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all rejoice with it. Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. Well, think about that. That's a big deal. We're all necessary. We're all needed. Here's the application. If we commit ourselves to the kingdom value of we is greater than me, then we will fulfill God's desire for us to love one another. Then the world will take notice and be drawn to our selflessness. And here's the question. Does your life demonstrate me is greater than we or we greater than me what about in your family your marriage or in your church family and really here's the question what is keeping you from an attitude of we is greater than me is it selfishness is it pride is it unforgiveness and resentment what is it and then I want to close with this we is greater than me 
But here's one part that we actually attach to the very front of our kingdom values. He is greater than we is greater than me. And y'all, we must keep that in focus. If you were to say, okay, give me a picture of what this Christian life looks like. He is greater than we is greater than me. That's the perfect picture. Would you stand to your feet? Father, we just thank you so much for your blessings, Lord. And Lord, we just come to you now. And Lord, I look across this room and I see so many people that's impacted my life. I see so many people in this room who, who have gone beyond what I think uh, uh, sometimes that, that's required to, to be members of the body. And I see people in this room that are making great sacrifice for their families, for this body, and just living that life to be devoted to you. But Father, I know that also there are some that are here today and maybe they are serving. Maybe they are part of the body, but they're harboring something in their heart, something in their heart that's keeping them from being all that you called them to be. I don't know what that is, but Father, I know your Holy Spirit will put his finger on what that is. And Father, if there's someone here today that maybe they're not associated to the body, because they haven't come to you. They, they haven't repented of their sins, turned their life over to you, and turned, uh, turned to you, Father. And, and, and Lord, you haven't placed them in the body yet because of that decision has not been made. Father, I pray today, if there's someone here today that's never made a decision to follow you, that they would on your terms. And Father, I pray for someone in this room. Maybe, maybe they feel that they've been called to be a part of this body. Father, I pray that you lead them. Just help them be obedient to what you call them to, whether it's here or wherever it may be. Help them to see the need to be a part of a local church family. We thank you for what you're going to do. Be with us during this invitation. In Jesus' name, amen.